morning, we're in Revelation chapter seven. And let me just review quickly with you. Uh, chapter four and five, we zoom up to heaven and we get this picture of a raptured church in heaven celebrating around the throne of God. Chapter five, there's this book that's introduced that has seven seals on it and no one can open it except Jesus. Jesus steps on the scene and heaven explodes with praise and they're worshiping Jesus who has this book that's sealed and we're questioning like, what is in this book? What are these seals? Chapter six begins to unseal the book one by one by one, but it takes us away from heaven back down to earth. And what we find is that there's a stark contrast. And on earth, things are getting very dark very quickly and these seals are actually unfolding the judgments of God on earth. And really it's just God kind of letting man be man. And all of a sudden there creeps in deception, there creeps in more wars and rumors of wars and fighting and bloodshed and then famine and then pestilence and disease and lots of death and then earthquakes and calamities and all these things are unfolding on earth and we open six of the seven seals. And when you get to chapter seven, you're kind of anticipating, well, I'm about to open the seventh seal, right? There were seven seals, I just opened six of them. Next up is number seven. But not yet, that's actually chapter eight. Chapter seven is this time out from God. And he begins to, I think, even answer maybe what would be a natural question. This tribulation is happening and these seals are opening and all this calamity is taking place on earth. Are people turning to God? Is anyone like responding to this wrath and judgment and saying like, God, we, we put our faith in you. And, and if they are, what's happening to those people? And chapter seven begins to address exactly this. And this morning, I want you to see God's witness protection program as I think what chapter seven is. So here we are in verse number one, it begins to tell us about these 144,000 sealed servants. And if there was a list of topics from the book of Revelation, that were the most talked about, but the least understood, perhaps this group of 144,000 sealed servants would be on that list. And I just want you to see what the text says. It says in verse number one, after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, let me start by saying God's not a flat earther. Uh, God did not just say the earth is flat and there's four corners, okay? Um, this is an ancient colloquialism to basically represent the globe. And it's even something we use in our day and age. We may come to the Paris Olympics coming up here and, uh, and say, oh, look at all these Olympians assembled from every corner of the globe. Do we literally mean the globe has corner? No, it's an idiom to say from all over the world, right? And here are these angels that are about to affect the whole earth and they're holding the wind on a leash. We'll see in verse two that this wind is meant to bring hurt and destruction. It's not a positive wind, but they're holding this wind on a leash that is going to be unleashed on the sea and on the earth and on the trees. In verse number two, it says, I saw another angel, a fifth one. And he ascends from the east and he has this seal of a living God and more to come on this seal. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. He says, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees until 
we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. All right, so what's going on here? Well, first of all, it says that there's this destruction that's going to come, but wait, don't do it yet. Before this comes, we want to seal these servants of God. So servants of God being people that love God, obey God, have put their faith in God, right? And there are these servants and we want to seal them. What, is, what does this mean? Now in the Bible days, a seal was really meant to do three things. It was meant to represent possession or protection or preservation. We still do some of this if, if we had maybe a nice uh, wedding invite that was sealed perhaps to protect it and to, and to keep the, the invitation safe. We still seal some of our canned goods so that they're preserved for a long period of time. But a seal meant, and you can write it down, possession, protection, preservation. That's what a seal meant. And the seal here represents exactly this that they're the servants of God that God wants to mark and say, they are mine, I possess them, these are my people, I'm going to protect them. That's why this whole hurt the earth with the wind sort of scenario popped up. I am going to seal them and the indication is very clear that this will protect them and this protection will actually preserve them and keep them away from some of the harm or some of the wrath. You say, how exactly is that gonna happen? And the seal save them from some of the calamity or some of the hurt that would befall the rest of the earth. I'm not entirely sure how that's gonna work, but I know this much that God is sealing a select group of people in order to say they're mine and they're going to be protected and they're going to be preserved in a supernatural way. And a seal is something that we could get the picture of if you're like, it's in their forehead though. That's weird. Like, is this sci-fi? What is this stuff? Well, it's not that weird. Culturally and biblically, there are examples of this. Culturally, uh, we would have seals. Perhaps a sailor would have a anchor on his arm to indicate that I was part of the Navy and would be this seal of sorts, this tattoo that says, hey, I belong to this group of people. Uh, perhaps the ranchers of Yellowstone get branded with a Y on their chest to say that I possess you and I protect you. In Hindu culture, ladies would have uh, this mark, this little jewel that's in the forehead, in between the eyes. It's a bindi, and it's meant to say that I'm married, that we belong to each other, and I have a husband who will protect me. So this isn't a far-fetched idea. What exactly will the seal be, and how will it be a tattoo? Will it be a brand? Will it be some chip? Will it be, I don't know. I don't know. But a marker to say, these are my people. And, and biblically, there are examples of this. We'll see later on in Revelation, we'll get to the much debated mark of the beast that the beast and the devil will have his own version of this to seal his people and their forehead to mark these groups of people separate from each other, like the black checkers and red checkers on the board that clearly belong on different teams, that this will happen with them. We even have an Old Testament example of this. The prophet Ezekiel was told to go to the people and prophesy against their idolatry. But there's a point in Ezekiel chapter number nine where he's told to go through the city and to find the other people who are grieved by the idolatry of the children of Israel. 
and to mark them in their forehead because shortly thereafter, a team was going to come through and wage war and eliminate and eradicate those who were idolatrous, but this mark on their forehead or seal on their forehead would, would symbolize and let them know, don't hurt them. And that really was a prototype of sorts for what's happening here in Revelation chapter number seven. So the, the point is this, this is a group of people that God's going to want to protect and preserve in a special way. And it tells us a little bit more about this group of people in verse number four. Here's what it says. I heard the number of them which were sealed. So it's not an infinite number. It's a precise number. They were sealed 144,000. And these are from the, all the tribes of the children of Israel. So how many people is God going to protect in this way? 144,000. Will there be unbelievers that aren't protected? Sure. Will there be believers that aren't protected in this way? People during the tribulation that come to faith, but God does not protect in this way. Yes, and we're gonna see that in just a minute in chapter seven. There's a special group that has this, 144,000, and they're Jewish. Chapter 14 will tell us a little bit more. It will tell us that they're Jewish men who are single men that are virgins. There will be a group of single Jewish men that are marked out in this way. And in case the tribes of Israel didn't make that clear enough, verse five through eight begins to tell you in even greater detail that it meant what it said. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000. You're getting the picture, right? Nephtalim, 12,000. Manassas, 12,000. Verse seven, Simeon, 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000. Verse eight, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin, 12,000 each. Now, let me take a minute and talk about, I could spend the whole sermon here, but I won't, I won't do that to you. But I will spend a couple minutes to talk about different hypotheses or, or schools of thought that are out there on these tribes. And then we'll just let the text speak for itself. So you would have uh, some cults that have some teaching along these lines, quite a few, the most famous of which is the Jehovah's Witnesses. In the early days of Jehovah's Witnesses, which I'm not sure if you knew, uh, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses is from Pittsburgh. Uh, they actually have a section for him in the Heinz History Museum on the seventh floor, if you ever wanna go there and look at it. But in the early days, it was, we are going to be the 144,000. We're going to be the people that God, you know, possesses and protects and preserves. And then that grew larger than 144,000. And they had to go back and kind of edit the doctrine a little bit and say, oh, well, maybe it's not us. Maybe it's like the best of us, the cream of the crop. We're going to be the people that God will possess and protect. And pretty much everyone else is just ashes to ashes. And that's the end, which isn't true. That's not what the text says. There are Christians, good Bible-believing, love the Lord, authentically Christian people who will spiritualize this text and will say, I know what it says, but 144,000 doesn't literally mean that. It's just symbolic of like a lot of people. And I know it says the children of Israel, but it doesn't really mean the children of Israel. It really means the church. And that's not true either because it's not what it says. And you always want to take the text literally. If the plain sense makes common sense, don't go seek another sense. But the, there are those that would say that and it's birthed out of really you're spiritualizing the text because you need it to fit your doctrine that you've already pre-established. It's birthed out of an idea that God had a plan for Israel and then God has the church 
and the church has supplanted God's plan for Israel and replaced Israel, and there's no longer really a plan for Israel. And that's, that's I don't want to debate with people about it. I don't, it's a secondary issue that I don't have to fight with people about. Someone's not a heretic if they believe that, but we've never believed that as a church. That God had a plan for Israel and God has a church and there's a two separate distinct groups of people. And it allows you, if you don't believe that the church suddenly just took over for Israel, it allows you to read this, check, this text at face value. And we don't believe that the church has, has replaced Israel because number one, the New Testament talks about Israel a lot, like 70 different times. And every time it refers to an ethnic group of people. And while it is true that the Bible talks about that there are ethnic Jewish people that aren't legitimately spiritual Israel, they haven't put their faith in Jesus and they need to, it does talk about that. Israel always refers to an ethnic group. It's never spiritualized to be the church. Furthermore, if, if this is the case, and I'll leave it here and we'll apply it, okay? I'll get out of the weeds in a minute. If it's the case that God has replaced Israel with the church, what that means is God's everlasting promise to Abraham wasn't everlasting. And you could see how that would become problematic for us when we're banking on the promise of everlasting life. And if this everlasting promise was fickle, I'm a little skittish that this everlasting promise is fickle. Like it starts to unfold in some really nasty ways. So when this text says there's a group of people and they're gonna come from each tribe of Israel, God's gonna take some and he's going to protect this special group in a special way, we read it at face value. This is what it says. Now, let's get out of the trees and start to see the forest for a little bit. I am extremely comforted by this text for a variety of reasons. This text to me starts to teach me about the nature and character of God, and it starts to teach me about myself. On the nature and character of God, think about this. Even in the middle of a tribulation that is designed to be a specific period of time where God is pouring out his wrath on the world, even in the middle of that, God continues to draw people to himself. I think about the implications of this. I'm tempted to say, God, you've done enough. Just wash your hands clean of this, but he doesn't. God, he, he sets up Israel really to be a testimony to the nations of here's what it would mean to be a people who live by faith in Jehovah God, which is beautiful. And he tells those Jewish people, as you walk by the way, as you go about your day, as you go about your work, as you go about your life, share your faith. Talk about the testimonies of God. Talk about the precepts of God. Share it with you. Evangelize more or less as you go on your way. And then in due time, he sets up a temple. And in this temple is this courtyard of the Gentiles. It's on the outside of the temple that's meant to be this place where the unbelievers or the seekers can come and they can look in on the temple worship and they could see what it would be like to sacrifice or to worship God. And these Gentile peoples with that in mind could become God-fearers, still Gentile, but putting their faith in God, or could even proselytize and come over to the Jewish faith. It's this area that Jesus throws out the money changers out of. It's that courtyard of the Gentiles that Jesus has ticked that they would hijack and ruin this experience for the Gentile people to be able to look in on the Jewish worship. And God has this. And then if that wasn't enough, he decides to become man. 
to take on flesh in the person of Jesus, which is quite the downgrade to go from heaven to, to earth, to take on flesh, to live a perfect life and to die on the cross, to make a way of salvation and offers that salvation, not just to Jewish people, but to everyone and says, this is salvation for everyone to have and to enjoy. He establishes a church in that church. He gives them a commission. He establishes apostles and evangelists and pastors and Bible teachers to proclaim the message in his grace. He gives us printing presses and we're able to distribute the Bible and people are able to have it in their language. And I would be tempted to say, I've done enough. I have given you the Jewish people. I've given you a, a temple system. I came in the flesh and died for you and demonstrated my love. I gave you a church. I gave you evangelists. I've given you a Bible. I, what more do you want from me? I'm done. Wrath. But he doesn't. The wrath is being poured out in judgment. But in the middle of this, God is still seeking. God is still saving. God is still wanting to redeem men. And that's beautiful. It speaks to the graciousness and the mercy and the character of our God that he would want to do this in the middle of this time of wrath. But it begins to teach me a little bit about me because I don't know if you know this. If it's a secret, I'll, I'll bust the bubble and tell you the secret. You're sealed too if you're a Christian. Now, sealed in your forehead during the time of tribulation, no. But sealed nevertheless, what does Ephesians tell us? That everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. And the same thing applies to you. God sealing you means you're mine. I protect you. I preserve you. I, I have you. I don't know if you've ever thanked God for sealing you. I know I thought about this this week. I thought, I don't think that's ever been a note of praise for me. God, thank you for saving me, but thank you for sealing me for saying I'm mine or, or I'm yours. To say literally, sin can't have you. The devil can't have you. Hell can't have you. You are sealed, you are mine. Like that is a beautiful thought that God will possess us and protect us and preserve us in not an identical way as this text, but it's similar enough for us to take a lesson from it and say, God, thank you for saving me and thank you for sealing me. And it goes on to shift from this group for a moment and it, and it goes from this group that's protected on earth to some other people who were in this tribulation period who put their faith in Jesus but were not sealed and protected, but died. Perhaps martyred, perhaps they suffered death from the earthquake or from uh, the devastation that, that reigns. And here's this group of people in verse number nine, and we're just immediately introduced to them with the salvation celebration. Here it is. And after this, I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations, and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb. Time out for just a minute. This is interesting to me. This indicates that we will retain all, and if not all, at least a large portion of our ethnic identity in heaven. There's some that teach that when, you know, get to heaven or God will give us a glorified body and we're all just gonna be cookie cutter. We'll all just look exactly the same. That's not what it says. I see kindreds, I see tribes, I see tongues. I see all these different people. I see like the world's biggest United Nations gathering, right? And I love that idea. 
Dave, you talked about in your video that, you know, we're different from each other and God doesn't eliminate those differences and eradicate them when we get to heaven and we, and we lose all vestige of our ethnic identity. No, 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 quite the opposite. They're in heaven and they're easily identified by this and they're clothed with white robes, it says at the end of verse nine, and they had palms in their hands. Now, think about palm branches this way, because you probably haven't praised with palms in your hands recently. Palm branches are the ancient equivalent of um, balloons for a party. It's something that marks joy and celebration. And while they don't have balloons, you can maybe think of it this way, that here they are in verse number 10, they begin to cry with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the lamb. So all of a sudden activity and volume begins to be turned up and they begin to praise. And what do they praise God for? What do they praise Jesus for? Salvation. They're praising God and celebrating the fact that God would redeem them. And we'll see in just a moment that this salvation bleeds over, not just into their worship, but to other people's worship. And this is the way it works. That a recognition of the salvation that God offers us leads us into genuine worship. And that uh, it's impossible for it not to go that way. And I want you just to take a note and remember that if you're, if you're having a day where you're struggling to get the wheels of worship turning and you're just, you're self-focused, you're down in the dumps, whatever it may be, start here. Start to think about and thank God for salvation. Start to thank him that he would provide a way of salvation, that he would come, that he would live, that he would die for us, that he would raise. Start to thank him that he would offer this way of salvation to you and extend it not just to this select group of people, but that it, it touched you. Start to thank him that you're saved from your sins, that you're sealed, that hell is not in your future and wrath is not in your future and that your sins are forgiven. Begin to verbalize that, begin to thank him and see if you don't want to begin to express reverence and adoration and praise to God in a host of other ways because you started there. And these individuals, it doesn't tell us who they are just yet, but it will in a second. This great multitude begin to praise God that he saved them and all of a sudden there's this, bleacher section where the angels start to chime in. Verse number 11. And then the angels that stood round about the throne and then the elders and the four beasts, they fell before the throne on their faces and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever, amen. You see this? The saints begin to worship and what happens? That worship is contagious. Now the angels begin to join in. Now the beasts begin to join in. Now the elders begin to join in and now they're all praising together. You know what the Bible says about the angels and salvation? The Bible says about the angels that they don't know salvation from the inside out, but they desire to look into that and understand it that they, they can intellectually perhaps understand mankind and that we're rebellious and that God would need to redeem us, but experientially they know nothing of this. 
And the salvation comes from these saints. There's a different set of praise that comes from these angels. It's not, it's not the same verbiage, but the praise from these saints bleeds over and now the angels, they wanna join in on what they can praise about as well. You know what the Bible says about a lost world when it comes to our praise, our worship, our expression of reverence and adoration to God, our singing even? The Bible says in much the same way that a lost world looks in on our worship of God and not always, but oftentimes, they wanna get in on it. Something begins to churn in them to say, what is this joy about? What is this gladness about? What is this salvation about? What is happening here? What, I, I don't know what these people have, but I, I, I want some of it. I'm not sure if I agree with them, but I, I kind of wish this were true. That there's something, see Psalm 96, if you doubt what I'm saying, that we praise God before the nations, before the heathen. And it's, there's something magnetizing about it that they want to get in on it. Praise is contagious. It should be that way whether it's in your small group or whether it's here in, inside of church at a 1030 service, whether that is in your own family or whether that is even to a lost and dying world, there's something that is beautiful about when the people of God extend praise to our God and worship him sincerely from our hearts. So they begin to praise and now the angels begin to praise and the beasts and the elders begin to praise. And here in verse number 13, we identify this group of people with white robes and palm branches. I told you earlier, they were people that were saved during the tribulation who died during the tribulation. And this is why I say that. One of the elders answered saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? So another walks up to John and says, John, who are these people? Where, where did these gingers come from? What's happening here? And here's what John says to him in verse 14. Sir, thou knowest, you know, don't ask me, you know. And the elder, sure enough, he does know. He said unto me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. See, see what it's saying? You're, let me just review it. Chapter five, heaven. Chapter six, seals opened, wrath on the earth. Are people coming to faith? Are people trusting in Jesus during this time of tribulation? Absolutely, and there's this group that God's gonna seal and protect, but there's this other group, many, multitude it says, innumerable, maybe the greatest revival the earth has ever seen that are coming to faith and are putting their, their trust in the Lord. And these are they which die during this period, whether the earthquake got them or whether the famine got them or whether the war got them or whether the beast ends up killing them later on. But these are they which are perhaps martyred, perhaps they just die from natural causes. But these are they which die during this period. Many, many, many of them that have come to faith in the Lord Jesus, they've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. All they're saying is they trusted in the death of Jesus on the cross. And these ones are there and they're praising. And while we, not, we will not go through the same thing as them, we will go through something like them. We know that we will endure in this life persecutions, trials, troubles. And what happens with these saints is meant to be a lesson for us. Because listen to verse number 15. It's not just these 144,000 that have witness protection. In a different way, those who are perhaps martyred for their faith have the protective custody of God over them. And here's what it says, verse 15. 
Therefore are they before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. And listen to this. They shall hunger no more. They shall neither thirst anymore, neither shall any sunlight on them nor any heat. They're not gonna get sunburned or be exposed to the elements. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them pierogies and kielbasa and Turner's tea. Now it doesn't say that. I don't know what he's gonna feed them but he'll feed them and he shall lead them under fountains of living waters and God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. How beautiful is that? I had a special group with a special mission that I want to serve me on earth during this tribulation that I'm gonna protect, but I have a whole bunch of people that are putting their faith in me and they're dying and they're here in heaven, but I'm gonna protect them in a unique way in that they are still, they still have heaven as their home. They still have me as their God in their midst. I will be with them. I will take care of them. I will provide for them. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more tears. How beautiful is that? And while these are promises to tribulation saints, what we'll find is that these promises are more or less echoed to all the people of God at the end of Revelation. That he wipes away our tears and he's in our midst and we're with him forever. And that this is meant to give us something to hold on to. This isn't a tease of, well, if you make it through the tribulation and you die there, I got, I got a special little perk for you, but the rest of you, na 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 boo boo, you can't have this. No, 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 no. This is meant to be a tease of this is for you too, and we'll see it later on. And how practical is that? Because if we know anything about life, we know this much. It's hard. Is it not? There are days when we don't want to do it. There's hurt. There are trials. As Matt said, we get pushed off into the median and do a lot of damage. And what do you tell a Christian person who just lost their three-year-old? What do you tell the widower who just lost his wife? They were about to hit 60 years of marriage three weeks later and she just passed. What do you tell a Christian who's being tortured for their faith in the Middle East? What do you tell the dad who lost his job and is struggling to put food on the table and is embarrassed about it? I'll tell you what you tell them. You look at Revelation 7 and you say, this is not God's final plan being hungry and struggling to provide and scraping and scrapping and hurting, this is not the final plan. There is heaven. There's the glory of God. The tears wiped away. Provision and care and love and protection. That's what you tell them. And while we could look at Revelation 7 and we could get in the weeds and we could debate the intricacies of all this, I want you to see the big picture. We have a caring God who seals us and protects us and provides for us and preserves us. If you remember, we ended chapter number six with all this wrath and calamity. 
And there was a question posed in the last verse of chapter six. Who can stand before this God? This colossal, this, this God, this altogether different being, who can stand before him? And chapter seven tells you the answer. A lost and dying world cannot, but the saved, sealed servants, singing people of God, we get to stand before him. We get to be boldly before a throne of grace. We get to be in his care and be in his, in his glory. We get to be in his presence and then not melt us or cause anxiety for us or scare us, but warm us and give us truly what we desire and crave to be cared for, to be loved by someone like, the, like there's no tomorrow, to be loved to the moon and back. And this communicates that our God is that God.